everyone, and welcome to the June 20th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Scarn and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The U.S. Supreme Court lowered the limits on the kind of fraud claims that can be brought against health care providers. The case involved a suit against one of America's largest hospital operators over a woman's death at one of its clinics. More than a dozen major healthcare organizations have jumped into the case, which involves the validity of a legal theory now used to bring many fraud lawsuits against them. But the 8-0 ruling was not the broad victory sought by the defendant Universal Health Services. The case focuses on situations in which whistleblowers claim providers have submitted false claims to the federal government program by failing to follow regulations. <clears throat> that legal theory is known as implied certification and has been accepted by some federal appeals courts and rejected by others. The justices threw out a 2015 appeals court ruling that had allowed the parents of Yaruska Rivera to sue Universal Health Services. But the court sent the case back to a lower court, meaning the suit could potentially still proceed. Rivera suffered a fatal seizure in 2009 at the age of 19 at a mental health facility owned by Universal Health Services. The lawsuit said the facility provided gravely inadequate treatment and used unsupervised and unqualified personnel and Rivera's parents accused the company of defrauding the federal government because it did not comply with federal staffing regulations. The ruling represented a partial victory for the defendants because it rejected the lower court's expansive view of liability under the Federal False Claims Act. The Universal Health Services lawyer said he was pleased the justices threw out the appeals court ruling and set a new, more rigorous standard. But health providers had hoped the justices would put more limits or disallow completely lawsuits based on a federal contractor's failure to meet certain legal or regulatory requirements. The court instead said such lawsuits can be filed as long as they are relevant to the government's decision to make the payment to the company. Justice Clarence Thomas, writing for the court, said the parents may well have adequately pleaded a violation of the fraud law, but he added that the False Claim Act is not a means of imposing trouble damages and other penalties for insignificant regulatory or contractual violations. The Obama administration had backed the parents in this case. And now our crime report. Former state Senator Ron Calderon has pled guilty in the Pacific Hospital of Long Beach bribery case. He is represented by the famous criminal defense lawyer Mark Garagos, who has defended Michael Jansen, actress Winona Ryder, politician Gary Condit, Susan McDougall, and Scott Pedersen. Attorney Garagos was likely bluffing the week before when media sources quoted him as proclaiming that a plea agreement for his client was not being discussed and he expected the case would proceed to trial. Within a week of his proclamation, Ron Calderon's criminal plea agreement was signed by both of them and filed in federal court. 
Ron Calderon was elected California State Senator in 2006 and held that office until November 2014 after his arrest. His brother and co-defendant Thomas M. Calderon served as a California State Assemblyman until 2002. Shortly after leaving office, defendant Thomas Calderon founded the Calderon Group Incorporated, a political consulting company. And he also became an executive officer of Californians for Diversity, a tax-exempt public benefits corporation. Michael D. Drabat was one of the defendant Thomas M. Calderon's political consulting clients. Drobot owned and operated the Pacific Hospital of Long Beach. Drobot wanted to preserve the spinal pass-through legislation in California so he could continue to make substantial amounts of money performing spinal implant surgeries on workers' compensation patients. Drobot agreed to hire Ron Calderon's son as a file clerk and to pay him $10,000 per summer while Calderon's son was in college. Ron Calderon admitted that in exchange, Drobot expected him to vote against legislation that would eliminate the spinal pass-through and support legislation that preserved it. Drobot employed Calderon's son for three summers and paid him about $30,000. Ron Calderon also agreed that he understood that he faces a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. And former NBA star Kermit Washington was arraigned in Kansas City and pleaded not guilty to his fraud charges. He was arrested last month in California after he was indicted by a federal grand jury. Prosecutors allege that Washington referred professional athletes to California attorney Ron Mix to file workers' compensation claims. In exchange for the referrals, Mix made payments to his charity project called Contact Africa and claimed those amounts as charitable deductions on his personal tax returns. But upon receipt of these payments, Washington diverted the funds for his own personal benefit instead of the charitable purposes. Prosecutors claim Washington used his celebrity status to exploit the good intentions of those who donated to the charity he founded. Washington allegedly diverted hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations that was supposed to benefit a clinic in Africa for needy families and children. Washington was arrested in Los Angeles and had his initial appearance in the U.S. District Court in the Central District of California. There, he was ordered to surrender his passport and released on bond and required to wear a location monitoring device. If convicted, Washington faces three years in prison on the charge of corrupt interference with the internal revenue laws, 20 years in prison on the charge of conspiring to commit wire fraud, 20 years in prison on the charge of obstruction, and a mandatory sentence of two years in prison for the charge of aggravated identity theft. A federal grand jury has indicted a doctor who operated a medical clinic in Fountain Valley as well as two physician assistants who worked at the clinic on federal drug trafficking charges. They allege that they issued prescriptions for addictive narcotics without a medical purpose. 65-year-old Dr. Victor Boone Huat 
Siu, who lives in Laguna Beach and is a 1975 graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, is also board certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine. He is accused of issuing prescriptions for an addictive and dangerous drugs outside the usual course of professional practice and without a legitimate medical purpose. The indictment alleges that Sue wrote prescriptions for at least four people who died from drug overdoses within days of seeing the doctor. His patients often paid cash for office visits that typically involved only the most cursory examination, if any examination at all. He often prescribed oxycodone, methadone, and alprazolam. The physician assistant arrested was 31-year-old Caitlin Fuang Nguyen, who lives in San Jose. The third defendant physician assistant is 45-year-old Than Na Ti Pham, who lives in Fountain Valley. Each of the 56 counts in the indictment carries a statutory maximum penalty of 20 years in federal prison. The case is being prosecuted by Assistant United States Attorney Anne Luat Wolf. And in regulatory news, the DWC will enforce the regulations that require lien claimants to use a uniform assigned name, the acronym is UAN, when filing documents beginning June 25. This is a uniform naming convention which ensures that parties are properly associated to cases in EAMS. The UAN is currently used by attorneys, claims administrators, and lien claimants. Now, lien claimants must use their UAN when filing a lien in application for adjudication or their attempt to do so will result in failure. This requirement applies to all filing methods, OCR, e-form, and jet filing. Lien claimants should check the UAN lien claimants search page to verify their exact UAN name that must be used. Lien claimants who do not have a UAN should immediately request one from the DWC. The new assigned name or information will be posted within 10 business days of receipt of the request. This new mandate is likely to become an additional tool in the claim administrator's healthcare fraud prevention process. The true identity of fraudulent medical providers is often hidden behind fictitious business names, medical management companies who file liens in their name, as well as collection companies. Identification by a single unique number may provide an investigatory thread that can be followed right up to the culprit's doorstep. A review of thousands of criminal court records by the Center for Investigative Reporting concludes that prosecutors are pursuing charges against more than 80 medical professionals who have handled more than 100,000 injured workers' cases, most of them originating in Southern California. They allege that the cases account for $1 billion in fraud. And the overburdened lien process favors settlements over trials, so they often succeed in collection. And Christine Baker, the DIR director, says the DIR knows there's a problem. Her department has begun reviewing the medical providers who currently file the largest number of liens. The review shows that many of the lien claimants are criminally indicted, but 
With enforcement of the uniform assigned name, perhaps the DWC and claims administrators will soon be able to better track the identity of the person who is asking to get paid. Four U.S. Senators, two Democrats, and two Republicans introduced a bill aimed at preventing big pharmaceutical companies from using safety rules to prevent generic drugs from coming to market. The Creating and Restoring Equal Access to Equivalent Samples, or CREATES Act, would deter pharmaceutical companies from blocking cheaper generic alternatives. Pharmaceutical companies should be compensated for their important work developing life-saving treatments, but the senators say that predatory practices at the expense of consumers are unacceptable. Drug affordability is a bipartisan issue that affects each and every one of us. The CREATES Act targets abusive delay tactics that are being used to block entry of affordable generic drugs. The first delay tactic occurs when brand name drug companies prevent potential generic competitors from obtaining samples of the branded product. Without samples, the generic company cannot perform the testing necessary to show that its product is equivalent to the brand name product, which is a prerequisite for FDA approval. The second delay tactic occurs when brand name manufacturers refuse to allow generic competitors to participate in their safety protocol. The CREATES Act allows a generic drug maker to bring a legal action in federal court for injunctive relief to obtain the sample it needs or access to the safety protocol. The bill also authorizes a judge to award damages to deter future delaying conduct. The Congressional Budget Office has estimated that the act would save the government over $2 billion in direct savings over 10 years. The savings to consumers and private insurance companies would likely be far greater. There is a similar bill in the House of Representatives which addresses the same issue but uses a slightly different strategy. The Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, or Pharma, which counts major drug makers among its members, said it had no immediate comment on the proposed law. The Generic Pharmaceutical Association was pleased to see the bill introduced. The DWC announces that the 2017 minimum and maximum temporary total disability rates will increase again on January 1. The minimum TDD rate will increase from $169.26 to $175.88, and the maximum TTD rate will increase from $1,128.43 to $1,172.57 per week. The Labor Code requires the annual rate increase equal to the percentage increase in the state average weekly wage. The SAWW increased 3.912% last year. Workers with a date of injury after January 1, 2003 will also receive the increase to life pensions or permanent total disability benefits. The DWC has issued a second notice of its intent to modify the hospital outpatient departments and ambulatory surgical centers fee schedule. 
Members of the public are invited to present written comments by July 6th at 5 o'clock p.m. The DWC held a public hearing on the fee schedule a year ago. The proposed amendments provides a response for some of the issues that were concerns at that public hearing. The notice and text of the proposed regulations can be found on the DWC proposed regulations page. And in medical news, a new study says that doctors in states that track painkiller prescriptions were nearly one-third less likely to offer patients dangerously addicting opioids. The launch of drug monitoring programs in 24 states led to an immediate 30% drop in these prescriptions for Scheduled II opioids. California is among the states that have such a monitoring program. It is called CURES 2.0, which stands for Controlled Substance Utilization Review and Evaluation System. It is a database of Schedule 2, 3, and 4 controlled substance prescriptions dispensed in California. California law requires all California licensed prescribers to register for access to Cures 2.0 by July 1, 2016, or upon issuance of a DEA controlled substance registration certificate, whichever occurs later. California licensed pharmacists must also register for access to Cures 2.0 by July 1, 2016. The researchers in this study analyzed more than 26,000 office visits for pain in 24 states that implemented prescription drug monitoring programs. In these states, the probability of a doctor prescribing a Schedule II opioid dropped from 5.5% to 3.7%, more than a 30% reduction. The results were immediate and held for three years. The study confirmed the hypothesis that physician drug monitoring programs are an effective tool to combat the opioid drug epidemic. Drug monitoring databases may make doctors think twice before prescribing pain medications. Knowing that they're being watched may serve as a deterrent. Primary care doctors treating adults for chronic pain write nearly half of all opioid prescriptions. The new guidelines recommended non-opioids like acetaminophen and ibuprofen as the first line of pain treatment. And another new study by the Workers' Compensation Research Institute found noticeable decreases in the amount of opioids prescribed per workers' compensation claim in a majority of the 25 states it studied. The WCIR The WCRI study also examines interstate variations and trends in the use of opioids. This study uses data from nearly 340,000 non-surgical workers' compensation claims. The data included in the study represented 40 to 75% of workers' compensation claims in each state. The study saw substantial interstate variation in both frequency and amount of opioid use. Louisiana, New York, Pennsylvania, and California were the highest in that order, and Illinois, Missouri, and New Jersey were lower than the median state. Many factors may be associated with the interstate variations observed, including pharmacy fee schedules, 
physician dispensing provider choice, and treatment guidelines for pain management. There was substantial interstate variation in the mix of opioid drugs that were prescribed in the 25-state study. Physicians in some states were more likely to prescribe stronger opioids such as oxycodone over opioids like hydrocodone and tramadol. And with that story, that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks again for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.